Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. My name is Ben Myers. I am a housing market researcher, analyst, consultant, and freakishly tall gentleman for those of you who have not met me. But before I introduce the guests on the show, I want to tell you about our tremendous sponsor. The Toronto Under Construction Podcast is sponsored by BCGI Barron Consulting Group, an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, and fund managers searching for talent. They are a trusted source for career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in North America. So if you love this show, please reach out to Robert and ask about his services. He can be reached at www.bcgi.ca. So we have three fantastic guests today. I'm actually going to let them introduce themselves. Tell me a little bit about uh, the company that they work for and what they do at that company. So uh, I guess we should go ladies first. Dana, why don't you, uh, why don't you take it away? Uh, thanks very much, Ben. Um, my name is Dana Gilbert. I'm the Managing Director of Real Estate Development at Forum Asset Management. Forum Asset Management has been around for 25 years. We're an investor, developer, and asset manager, and we have about... billion in AUM um, that we manage uh, across North America. We primarily focus on everything residential in our development pipeline. That goes anywhere from purpose-built rental to student-built accommodation, as well as traditional rental and condo. And so my role there is to ensure everything from soup to nuts, start to finish, acquisitions all the way through to construction and delivery of these products. Awesome. Greg? I'm Greg Gilbert. I work for a Toronto-based development firm called Fitzrovia, which is a leading uh, strictly purpose-built rental apartment developer. Uh, We have about 8,000 units uh, in different stages of construction and development. My role at the firm is vice president of planning, and along with two other VPs, we oversee the planning, design, and implementation of our rental apartment development pipeline. My focus is primarily on the early stages of projects, uh, scrutinizing potential acquisitions, and then getting our projects designed, approved, and into production as fast as possible. Awesome. Uh, Lior. Uh, My name is Lior Margulies. I head up the real estate lending and development groups at Robbins Appleby, which is a mid-sized Toronto law firm. Uh, We uh, handle, our groups uh, handle both the lending side and mainly construction. Uh, low-rise and and high-rise, as well as acting for developers on their acquisitions and then their marketing and development side. Apart from that, uh, in my spare time, I've been uh, on the build uh, board and their executive for 25 years, working on a plethora of industry issues. And as all of the listeners who are in the industry should know, there has been no shortage of them. I've worked uh, very closely with uh, Tarion and now uh, HCRA. 
And it's um, it's a quite a fascinating uh, industry, and it doesn't ever get bored. <laughs> yeah, so that's why that's why we're here. I mean, there's uh, never a shortage of things to to talk about. Uh, the newspaper is filled with real estate articles, or uh, I still say the newspaper, even though I don't actually read a newspaper anymore. <laughs> but I'm more of a a uh, seeing things online. But um, the format for today is going to be a roundtable. So we're just going to discuss some of the the happenings in the industry, and uh, I think. Uh, um, you know, we'll start off with the market. Obviously, I'm a I'm a market guy, and I and I I'm interested in the in the macro. So, uh, we had a you know a great blog post on uh, on on Robin's Appleby. You attended the you know uh, Build Market Outlook breakfast, and I just wanted to read a, a couple things on here and uh, from that from that blog post, and, and we can jump into uh, to discussing things. So it says George Karras of our labs emphasized the urgent need for housing industry to embrace innovation and efficiency in the 21st century. Developers need to innovate, and he's calling on the government to support and initiate uh, a drive for meaningful, meaningful change. And also, uh, Benjamin Tal spoke, which is you know obviously a very famous uh, deputy chief economist at CIBC. You'll see him at uh, all these real estate uh, events, and he commented that he feels the Bank of Canada should reconsider its inflation targets and hold rates steady until mid-2024. He suggests a more selective immigration policy that prioritizes construction workers to address labor shortages in the industry and a greater focus on getting rental apartments built. He went on to say, the Bank of Canada has to understand that we are in a recession. They have caused it already. And inflation has been beaten, and the Bank of Canada has to recognize it. Prices are rising at a level that is less than half of what they were last year. So, you know, let's, let's you know, just the first half of that. Greg, Fitzrovia, rapidly expanding um, rental developer. You know, I know you're on the planning side, but is your company spending a lot of time researching, you know, how to improve how buildings get built? Yeah, as we grow, we, we get a lot of pitches and a lot of solicitations to learn about new services and products. Yeah. And I'd say there's probably once a week where someone comes in from a factory tour or a pitch and they're just really excited to tell us about a new product they saw. And those products need to do one of three things. I would say build faster, uh, build cheaper and build more sustainably. And if they can hit all three of those those items, we're going to we're going to have a look at it. And we're going to explore it further. And one thing I really like about our culture is that there's a deep culture of innovation and we've made big bets on things like construction technology and our consultants know that we're, we're open to trying new things and there's often a push from them to innovate and that gets me even more fired up. Uh, a quick example is we've been dabbling with some structural concrete optimization software out of Israel, uh, which is really interesting, try and save some money, time and be more sustainable and, and not using up uh, carbon. And then another example is uh, modular precast concrete construction. That's an area of the business that you're seeing, uh, I think, a new factory opening up in Vaughan. And that's something we're doing on our affordable housing block at our Bloor Dufferin project, which is, which is kind of innovative. So they're building that concrete construction modular offsite in a factory, trucking on site and assembling with a crane in, in a matter of weeks. Um, and then we have our Yorkdale project. If you've been on the 401 lately, you see this giant yellow scaffolding that surrounds the building. That's uh, kind of a, a one of a kind in Canada that uh, allows us to hand lay brick up the building and there's a hydraulic scaffolding system that climbs up the building. So we're looking at new ways, we're open and we're generally all ears and we're, we're adaptable and we wanna be leaders on that front. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, 
I think George was was complaining that you know so much of the industry is exactly the same as it was a hundred years ago, right? And that there needs to be these t these types of moves. But Lear, I want you to comment a little bit on the um, you know the second part of that, the Benjamin Tao talking about the Bank of Canada and and, and where interest rates are going. How are your clients thinking about uh, when, where interest rates are moving? Um, and I also also wanted to know: is there anything written in contracts about interest rates and changes in the interest rates that your, your, your clients are trying to put in there now that maybe they weren't, <laughs> wasn't in there before. Right. Well, that's, that's a lot of things you asked in, I know. in so, one question. See, I, I always, so my brain I, is trying to process I, all of that and then come up with coherent I, I answers to I always ask like three things. things within a question because right. then something will hit on uh, <laughs> So in terms of uh, clients and, and, and uh, the current interest rate environment, it's obviously problematic. It's problematic on both sides. It's problematic on financing projects or acquisitions because the cost is high or it's, it's, it's brought them into cost overruns because they already have a project that uh, is a is obviously at a floating rate. So that, that that's a problem and it's keeping activity down. It's a problem in terms of their uh, perception of purchasers uh, buying new product. You know, I act for a lot of um, high-rise and low-rise uh, developers and uh, some of them have been adventuresome and entered the marketplace and some have done okay and some have not done so well. And some of the better capitalized uh, developers that can afford to wait are saying, you know, uh, the, the large part of the market is, is uh, based on investors, particularly on the high-rise, but not only on the high-rise. And without having uh, investors in the market, they're not going to sell a 300-unit building. And they just say, we're just going to wait. Now, they can do afford to do it because they can afford to do it. Uh, others can't. And um, I think this fall you're going to see a fair number of, of launches, and, and it'll be interesting to see. I, I, have, I had one last week, and I have one next week, also larger. Uh, these are developers, well-financed, well but they're not going to wait. And we'll see what happens because, yeah. uh, but that, that's the interest rate side, uh, and and so in terms of you know protecting themselves against cost increase, and I think that's I think that ship has sort of sailed. Um, yes, we lived in that COVID era with supply chain and prices and, and costs were just going through the roof, and and uh, all developers, big small, were basically being held to ransom. You know, you have a contract; it's three million dollars for contract. Well, it's now four million. You don't like it? That's okay. You can come and sue me in the meantime. Project stops. So we had a lot of those. Um, I, I think you'll see less of that. I think prices have come down. And I think the fact that demand is less will help. But what we developed, and a number of uh, lawyers and developers have been incorporating, is a, a clause that says um, the purchase price can be adjusted upwards up to a maximum. That's usually somewhere between 3 and 5% of the purchase price based on the increase in construction costs. Uh, based on, and there's a measurable, uh, there's an index uh, out there, and it's either just a straight, you know, a percentage to percentage, which it really isn't correct because construction costs only make up, let's say, on a low rise project, maybe 40%. So, but we have, a, we, we, I have a lot of requests for clients for that, uh, to do that. Huh. You can't deal with interest rates. I, I don't know. That's, it is what it is. And, yeah. and that's a closing risk. And that's a whole other story. You haven't asked that question, <laughs> but that's the biggest thing that I'm facing right now yeah. is closing uh, risk for um, uh, product, particularly that was sold in the later stages of um of COVID. Yeah. Uh, earlier, they're in the money, they'll find a way out. Later on, they're not in the money and they can't get financing and they can't afford the financing they can get. So that's a big problem and I'm just seeing, starting to see the cracks there. Yeah, now. interesting. So Dana, how are you thinking about, you know, I know that you guys have a few kind of condo projects that are your, uh, that you have in the pipeline. You know, what are the internal discussions about bringing some of those to market? Are any of them ready to go? And, and uh, you know, if not, you know, what's, what's your kind of timeline that you're looking at to bring some of these to market? 
So we have a number of active projects right now. A lot of them we're looking at them at first was, hey, maybe condo. Then all of a sudden, HSC went away. And it's like, well, maybe this is now a <laughs> rental project again. Yeah. Not sure. Um, one of the things, and I think you asked a number of questions and everyone kind of answered there, <laughs> is that innovation is really, um, and my role in the real estate part of Forum is to look at how we do development and how we approach each individual project. And so we have a number of projects. We were very fortunate that we weren't fully under construction in many, only in retrofits. But we look at each project for what it can do differently. And so if we look at something and it's a retrofit of an existing building, what could this be? Is it student housing? Is it condo? Is it rental? What is it? And how can we finagle the process? Because at the end of the day, what you said earlier about you know labor and everything else, we have a number of elderly people and people later in their life who are consumers of housing, but they're not creators of housing. And so we have to try and work within the existing planning process that we have right now, which in all honesty, really stinks. But I also really feel for... <laughs> Tell us what you really think. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I always do. Um, I mean, but they know that, and they're, work, they're working literally in checking of the boxes. And so I think the way that we approach all of our sites is, okay, if this is now a rental and we're moving to a rental, like we have a project, for example, right now at Sherborne, uh, Sherborne and Girard. Um, we purchased it as of right. It was already entitled. We had some open applications. I've sat down with the counselors, um, with staff, et cetera, to say, hey, I won't build this if I don't get a higher yield. How can we make this work? And once you start working with all the different processes, people, departments, et cetera, and you look at them and say, okay, what do you need to do to get your job done well? And who do you need to agree for you to do that? I'm getting a rezoning application done in three months. So there's ways that you have to just take a look at each individual piece and say, okay, is this a rental property or can we build in flexibility to allow it to then maybe at the end of the day be built as condo on spec? Not sure. Yeah. Can we look at these unit sizes differently? Can people live in less? Because all of a sudden that's a factor of affordability and can we now move the needle on, okay, what are people looking for? And so each one that we look at, like our lumbar project right now is a condo. Is it half strata rental? Is it half strata condo in the future? Not sure, but we're just trying to move slowly, but very innovatively, innovatively and efficiently um, as we go. And so it's really starting at the entitlement process and the underwriting process to say, what could this be? And how many options do we have of what could this be? And let's try and keep it open for all of it. Yeah, yeah we haven't seen too many like projects that have been like half rental, half condo. I've seen a few of them in, in Halifax, Urban Capital was, I, I knew, I knew did one, but, and I know that a lot of, a lot of developers outside the GTA will actually do a purpose-built rental, but they'll, the, the tenure is, is condominium. And that's, we've been getting some issues with these Statistics Canada data coming out saying that all these buildings in London, Ontario are investor owned, right? And they're actually just, the developer made the tenure condominium just allow for future flexibility. If something happens, you can sell off some units and, and, and raise some capital. So that's, that's, that's interesting, but it's actually a good, uh, a good segue into the next, next topic in terms of, uh, flexibility because there seems to be a lot of developers in need of uh, flexibility in terms of uh, in terms of financing and in terms of looking at their projects a little bit differently. So 
because we're, we're talking about some of the key topics, I think the number one topic over the last uh, couple of weeks was the one going into receivership. So uh, I'll just read this article that comes, uh, some of this, this quotes that come straight from uh, our friends at that Renex. It says, the one, an 85-story luxury development at the corner of Young and Bloor in Toronto is in receivership, co-owned by Sam Mizrahi and Jenny Coco. This project has had multiple challenges since its inception in 2015. The development carries almost $1.7 billion in debt, that's a B, folks, with substantial portion owed to senior secured lenders such as uh, ISIS Asset Management Incorporated. The Ontario Superior Court of Justice has appointed Alvarez and Marshall Incorporated as the receiver and manager of the one. The project was initially estimated to cost $1.4 billion and was expected to be completed by December of 2022. These estimates have been modified to a cost of $2 billion with completion in March of 2025. These issues are further complicated by Mizrahi and Coco being embroiled in a lawsuit over its development. Further litigation from China East Resource uh, resources import and export company, which is a mouthful for a company name, uh, and Apple terminating a lease for the flagship store. The one's future remains uncertain, showcasing the challenging landscape of high-end real estate development in Toronto. So, um, you know, one thing I saw, uh, Leor, that you you typed out on on LinkedIn is that Mizrahi is going to remain on as a general contractor. Is that is that correct? What 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 are your thoughts on this this overall situation? Well, okay, just going to that specific question, it's a, it's a, it's a bit uh, of an eye-opener that they would leave him in there because the lenders went in there because they felt that the construction project, two things, there was uh, the, the, the two owners were fighting, and they were also getting sued, sued by, themselves, by, by each other, by people <laughs> in Iran, by uh, lenders, lenders that were going into receivership. Um, it's a, it, the underlying was a complete mess, but I, I think what, what tipped them over is the fact that uh, it's just been totally mismanaged. They have a $500 million uh, cost overrun. Uh, I mean, just to put things in perspective in terms of numbers, I represented uh, Great Gulf uh, on the One Bloor East project. And um, I, you know, I don't, can't say where, like, the, the, the total project uh, was... The loans were in the 300 million range, so maybe it was 400 million. This is the overrun is 400 million, <laughs> and that was a 76-story building. Yeah. So uh, you know it wasn't a you know, anyway. So uh, uh, I think that he's there because he had the vision, so he has a lot of knowledge about the building yeah. uh, and about the construction. But quite frankly, I would be shocked if they didn't put in a real construction manager to take over, and they may consult with him to get information. Like there is zero chance he's going to be running this project. He says he. Is, but maybe, but uh, uh, Alvarez will find somebody else, and unfortunately, uh, Alvarez will also add another probably uh, thirty or forty million dollars of receivership costs. I've been involved with them in the Urban Corp deal. Uh, if people remember Dallas Saskin, yeah, and uh, they had a bill of over ten million, and there was no construction. They just managed the number of pro- they, they they didn't manage any of the construction. So I can only imagine if they manage this construction and bring it to fruition over the next few years, it'll be thirty or thirty million dollars. But it is what it is. I, I can't help you. Yeah, I mean so. there are there there are rumors for for a long long time. You know, the Wall Street Journal called me about this probably a year and a half ago, and and I. You know, I, I sent an email to Sam, and he like called me on a weekend, you know, to to talk about how great everything was going. So maybe it's, it's, it's going to be a real problem for Alvarez <laughs> yeah. because on Urban Corp was it wasn't a problem. Um, there were problems, but they were in an up, a rising market, and the rising market took care of everybody, yeah. purchasers, everybody. The purchasers didn't get their equity, but they got their money back. This is a different story. You've got purchasers that want out. 
who are at high, high numbers, in the high to 2000s. Um, they don't have enough of them. Uh, if they say, you know, normally, you know, they would blow them away so they could resell them and get more money. That's sort of the, the normal route for in, in the past. Yeah. Um, but that's not the case here. You blow them away, you'll get less. Yeah. Uh, and they still have like a whole slew of units to sell. So quite frankly, uh, and I do workouts, and I, 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 with the little I know, I, I think they have a real issue, and I, I don't know what the, the path to salvation for their lenders is. Yeah. There will be a huge loss, that's for sure. But how they get there, do they finish it and end up with a half-empty building, force people to close? Uh, good luck to them. I, I wouldn't want to be the deciding one. Deciding uh, guy you, on this you, one. you can't underestimate the reach of this story. Uh, like I'm kind of from the Windsor area and the Coco Paving family is royalty down there. Right. And I'm getting friends down there texting me, hey, have you heard about this? I'm like, of course, I, of course I've heard about this. Like, uh, but it's, it's a big deal down there. And uh, in this, the, just the, like you said, you have the New York Times reaching out to you oh, yeah. uh, or the Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal, oh, yeah. And uh, else, yeah. like, this is a big deal. Uh, I really was hoping that that extra kind of 10, nine or 10 stories they were getting through uh, the zoning process kind of would breathe new life and save the project from, from going down this path. But uh, unfortunately, maybe, maybe it didn't. I also think too, it kind of, extended their timeline as well and mm -hmm. kind of put them in a not great position within the city as well. Because I know that there was a lot of backlash around how they started out slow because they weren't working within kind of the process itself. And so because of that, the whole project right from the get-go just had its issues and had its problems. And I don't, I, I agree with you, like I'm, and you as well, I, I'm not sure how this is going to come out on the other end. And I, I don't think you just build, you know, an 85 story luxury building with, with it being half empty. Yeah. Um, but it might be the way yeah. unless you start turning it to end users yeah, so I, that they can walk the product. I, I, I'm, I'm envisioning a Pemberton coming in and buying the project and redoing it as a more mm -hmm. of a, not mm -hmm. a 2000 right. or, you know, not a $3,000 per square foot building, but something a little bit less, something like the project that they have down the street. Right. So, um, there was another article in the newspaper. I think it was, it was yesterday about, uh, our friends at Van Dyke, you know, having having some issues, and I just wanted to. Uh, you, you put out a press release actually in 2020. It says Robin's Appleby LLP has assembled a seasoned, multidisciplinary commercial real estate workout and enforcement team to help solve the shared problems of lenders, developers, contractors, landlords, and tenants suffering the effects of COVID-19. Is this is this you know interdisciplinary group that you set up? Is it still in place? And and uh, are you seeing a lot more of these you know potential receivership? deals and, and cost overrun deals uh, going to start, you know, <laughs> hitting the news. It's, so, it's sort of funny because we did, this, is the, this is the second time we assembled that team. The first <laughs> time was in 09-10 when the financial crisis hit because yeah. uh, me and my partner then, uh, Sheldon Goodman, uh, uh, felt that there's going to be a lot of developers out there that are going to need to restructure, need financing, need some both business and legal advice. And he was both a lawyer and a and a developer, and we felt there'd be a big demand. Um, you know, we helped one blur because we actually acted for Michael Gold, who originally purchased the site, and then we them, uh, sell it to, to Great Golf, and it turned out, I think, well for everybody in that regard. But that one didn't, we had a few, it, it wasn't a floodgate of problems, because at that time, other than one blur, unfortunately, you know, it was a French bank and they didn't play ball, but most other lenders at that time stuck around and said, you know, we'll wait and see, you know, give us a little interest, and we won't go away. We won't force you to refinance. We know we can't sell because there's nobody to buy and nobody to finance. I mean, there was no 
nobody to finance land. Nobody, no matter how good you were in that period of time. So that, so that sort of was okay. But then this time around, we, you know, nobody knew what COVID was going to be. Yeah. You didn't know how you were going to operate. I didn't know how I was going to run my office. So you know, we have a we have a, a, a receivership group. We have tax guys. We figured there's going to be a lot of restructuring. And until recently, um, the answer has been good for my clients that we, they haven't needed that uh, that expertise because yeah. most lenders, even the B and C lenders that are in there, you know, recognize that you know that what's happened is there's a lot of loans out there uh, that are stuck because they had all the pre-construction loans that had a two-year time frame, let's say, um, based on we get the zoning, we get our sales, then construction financing comes in, they take us out. That hasn't happened because there hasn't been the, the market to, to, to do it. So, the, so all these loans are being extended. And, and so the, most people have been treading water. Uh, and again, it's been longer. It's been a, in fact, that market took place, it was good because the market took off. So it, that never happened. Yeah. Now it's uh, April 22. That's a different story. Yeah. Uh, and again, the last year people have been hanging in there, but now I'm starting to see cracks. I have a number of, of files uh, where the cracks just blew up, I had two credit bids on, uh, on sites where the lenders have come in because no one will buy. No one can buy it for two reasons, right? You can't figure out the value. They might call you up, but you don't know <laughs> what, a, what the land is worth because you yeah. don't know what the revenue is going to be. Yeah. And even if you do, you can't get financing. So that's why in both those situations, the receiver tried to sell and it just didn't happen, uh, even though they're good pieces of land. Yeah. So the, the first, or in, in most cases, the second or third that had exposure that still felt there was value in there, put in a credit bid to buy it, basically at the debt, pay down a little interest, keep the first in, in play, and hope that in the next six months to a year, things will even out, they'll find a builder and, and so on, because right now you can't. Yeah. yeah, and so that, yeah. I'm starting to see those cracks now yeah. because people can't the, wait any longer. I'm hearing that bids aren't coming in on some of no, these, exactly, these, these exactly. deals that are coming that's through. Exactly so, right. interesting. Are you, uh, Dana? Are you guys looking at any of these uh, these land sales that are that are coming through and, and kind of looking for blood in the blood in the water, looking for uh, you know to pay some low, low prices for land? Or are you guys are you pencils down? What's 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 the status over at Forum? Um, we're absolutely not pencils down. Um, we are looking. I would say yes for blood in the water. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, I think, but in a very uh, specific and precise way. And so, you know, you have raw land right now. We're not really looking at a lot of raw land um, for like ground up development. Yeah. Um, we are looking at, there's a lot of projects either fully approved or, you know, in the middle of their entitlements, et cetera. And as I had said, we're very good at looking at all sorts of different residential classes, whether it's, uh, you know, condo, rental, purpose-built housing, traditional, per sorry, purpose-built student accommodation or just purpose-built rental. Um, but we have some tricks up our sleeves in terms of how to get through the approval process of how to rework a building even within its existing envelope and also how to maybe get more as well. And so we're looking at the, these kinds of deals, looking at wanting to partner with others. Um, and it could be a conditional on zoning basis. It could be like we're looking at the structure of our deals very differently now. Yeah. Um, we're also looking at office conversions. We're looking at hotel conversions. Wow. And so looking at something that, okay, how can we take something that exists? The approval process can be much shorter. We can inject not as much cash as you typically would for your entire new build. Yeah. From an ESG perspective, that's also amazing, which we put 
very high up on our on on our list of uh, what we want to move forward with in the real estate space and reuse something that has an existing infrastructure and then try and break it and walk away. So with hopefully at the end of the day, a really, really good project. Um, so we're absolutely not pens down. Um, we've actually done a number of different transactions. We're not looking at ground up unzoned land in the same way by any sense, uh, but we're trying to look at different types of uh, development and real estate, either with a partner or with something that we are taking over to then continue on. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, so Greg, there's some interesting news here for someone that's in the, the rental business. I'll read this from, again, from our from our friends at, uh, at Renex. It says, they did a little bit of a um, call a summary of a of an urban land institution uh, webinar, uh, ULI Toronto webinar. It says the group of experts felt removing GST from purpose built rental housing construction and several provinces removing their share of the harmonized sales tax was a positive step. Although unanimously they felt more has to be done as rising construction costs, increasing interest rates, and difficulties in securing equity investment make developing rental housing very challenging. The panel noted for Canada to produce more much-needed purpose-built rental housing, that more immigration is needed, uh, particularly construction workers, and the inclusion of you know an immigrants with, with, with a skill level uh, in, in construction, and that municipalities should provide additional tax incentives and grants uh, for rental developers. So, Obviously, big news coming out of uh, of the federal government. You know, what's uh, what do you think the impact is going to be on on your business? Is this going to uh, move up some of your projects, or you know, encourage you to take on you know projects in areas that you wouldn't have looked at before? Yeah, the the impact of this change is is really important to the purpose built mental market and, and builders like us. We really hope that they it can be looked at uh, and applied to projects that are maybe just beginning or also under construction. And those projects, uh, especially bigger ones, have kind of had their backs broken by a rise in interest rates and variable construction loan. Um, but I'd say for my day-to-day, this is impactful for two main reasons. It allows us to close the gap with condo developers on our purchasing power for land. Uh, I kind of compare it to uh, golfing with the guy who has the brand new $700 driver, and it's like no matter what you do and how good you hit it, you're never going to hit it as far as him. Uh, and then by having this HST uh, removal, um, it allows us to kind of compete and start hitting more fairways and getting more birdies and hitting it as long as those that guy with the new driver. So we're really excited about that. And uh, I think second, and from what I've seen, is outside of the GTA, uh, there's developers uh, and municipalities that want rental. Um, maybe they're not doing all the right steps uh, to get rental, but... If you have a project in a place like Newmarket, Barrie, Scarborough, St. Catharines that you're looking at and it's just kind of on the cusp of, uh, of viability, uh, this HST removal maybe can get you across the finish line, get you some proper financing and get a project uh, like who wouldn't want a Fitzrovia building in their downtown or on their waterfront uh, outside of Toronto. So that's kind of the attitude uh, we're taking is we want to go outside of the GTA uh, maybe at some point and I think this really helps ourselves like in forum and, and developers like that get yeah. there have you guys done any estimate on like what it will actually the percent savings it might have have you guys estimated what that number would be 
Uh, I don't, I don't want to speak out of turn from our investments team, but it, it maybe takes a project from like a 15% IRR to a 20% IRR. And okay. so usually, it's really moving the needle. Then. Depending on the municipality, depending on development charges, but we would really like to see that next level of incentives and grants, uh, especially outside the GTA where DCs and things are really, really high. Yeah. Uh, if they really cared about getting rental in their downtowns, they would take a long look at those things and, and start doing some economic development the right way. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I've done studies. It's funny in, in all those places that you mentioned: Newmarket, Barrie, St. Catharines. I'm, I'm doing one in Hamilton, and uh, interestingly, you know, the one I'm working on in Hamilton now, like some of the condos in downtown Hamilton are now getting as much as you know, like a two bedroom is getting as much as like three seventy five, three ninety a foot in rent, which is like pretty shocking from where it was a couple years ago, right? Like a new, a new uh, building, uh, a new high rise rental building um, was completely in downtown Hamilton in 2020, so in the middle of the pandemic, and they were getting like 270 a foot on average. So now they're getting like well over, you know, three and a half uh, on average for rent. So it's been pretty dramatic increases in some of these marketplaces. So obviously developers are looking. I mean, Hamilton's kind of like the, the hot spot right now, but it probably went, you know, on the condo side, it went up too quickly. Though. It went from like 725 bucks a foot to like 1100 bucks in like two years right so just unbelievable growth and uh and obviously you need investors to be able to buy in those marketplaces and uh and if you take up all that growth within a two-year period without it it being spread out then you know it's going to hurt those uh, it's going to hurt the people at the end of the cycle right so and you want all the all the investors to uh to to make money um Let's talk about the unintended consequences of planning policy. And I, I'm not, and I know we've got a couple of planners here, but I wanted to read this this article again. You know, I pull a lot of information from Renex. They, they're always very good to me. They like to quote me in lots of articles, so I, will, I always like to uh, to back them up. So, so public con, uh, consultation it says the primary goal of urban planning is to serve the public's best interest in how our cities develop so what could be more beautiful and well-intentioned than consulting with our communities every step of the way and it's truly amazing that we managed to make the community consultation an integral part of the planning process so what's the concern well, with any other democratic process that shapes our society for generations, meaningful participation of a diverse range of voices is crucial. Unfortunately, our community consultation process, the way it is currently structured, falls short in this regard. It not only fails to effectively engage the more marginalized group, but it also allows the louder voice of a smaller but more privileged group of disproportionately influence our cities and how they evolve. They often prioritize their short-term interests over a prosperous future for everyone. And there was a, is it, uh, a CIBC article that I, that I pulled up where a fellow by the name of Lior said, um, the longer the approval time, the greater the costs of carrying a property. You can shrink the approval process down from five years to two, and that's savings of a lot of big dollars. I like the, the exactness there. Margulies said that there is tremendous nimbyism in Toronto where 75% of the city is low rise. The ward system is a huge impediment to development. So uh, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, do you, uh, Lior, do you think that there is any value in these public consultations or you think it's just a platform for nimbies to rant? Well, it's both. I mean, look, there's, no, there's no question you, you need to get uh, uh, public input but uh, because you're going to affect the, uh, the neighborhood. And most smart developers do their homework and try and get people on board. Um, you know, the question is, how far do you go? And the, I think it was 
Bill 109 or 39, they cut down on the amount of consultations because they can keep going at infinitum. The city can say, oh, we want another one and another one. Yeah. And, and, and the reality is you know, people who live in an area that's low rise, um, there's no advantage to them to have um, you know, high rise or a higher density near where they live. And that's why you quoted me. I said the ward system is a problem. Uh, um, and it is a problem because it makes every decision um, a local decision as opposed to a larger decision. And, and yes, you need to have the local input. Uh, in Vancouver, and I'm not an expert, and there's problems with Vancouver, I'm told, but Vancouver is not large process. So you have a development, you have councillors, they're at large, so they don't necessarily represent this little area that the condo's going into. So they look at it a little more dispassionately mm-hmm. in terms of, does it make sense? There's, obviously, they will look at local interests, but they'll look at the larger ones. Here in Toronto, you you know, you, every developer goes cap in hand. I've said this a lot of times, if anybody's read any of my material, um, that Toronto, uh, the ward system, is like uh, the feudal fiefdoms of the Middle Ages. So if you want something... In, uh, in, in this uh, ward, you got to make your peace with him because, and if you don't, um, you're not going to get support generally from someone else unless it's so, you know, earth shattering that, you know, that you can, that other councillors will, will go against them. But they won't because they want you to support them. And even if they like your particular proposal and you have so much opposition within their, uh, their ward, they're going to say, look, guys, you know, I'd love to do it, but I can't. So I'm going to have to vote against it. You take it to the board. The board says it's good. I'm a good guy. Now, yeah. I'm sort of simplifying and they're not all like that, but there's a lot of that and that causes a problem they should really look at changing the ward system but that will never happen here yeah interesting i know that's obviously the entitlement process is 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 long and tedious and we've discussed it on this podcast hundreds of times but greg i know your firm has been pretty you know notorious uh for buying approved development sites so but appears obviously that uh that that's changing you know with with someone like you on board to help uh shepherd these these uh these projects through the process. Why that kind of change in philosophy at, at your firm? I know you haven't been there for many, many years, but what's what's the impetus for the for the change? I don't know if buying zone sites would be considered notorious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would have objected strongly yeah. if I was maybe, great, yeah, but I, I didn't want to Maybe that's not the right word. but No, uh, fair point. But in rental, um, we don't get to collect and borrow against condo deposits, so our equity requirements are, are much higher. And that, that makes us naturally uh, hyper-focused on getting through to construction, getting through leasing, and getting to stabilization in the quickest and most conventional way possible. Uh, so at first, zone sites was a way to do that. Um, so now we're six years old as a company. Uh, first couple of projects, uh, as you noted, we're kind of prove our concept to our partners uh, and build momentum. And uh, as our CEO, Adrian, called it, we, we really worked on the blocking and tackling of, of an organization, uh, eventually bringing construction in-house, and then owning on our special sauce and allowing us to succeed. So we've kind of proven that. We're, we're happy with that. Uh, and I think now, as we grow as a firm, we have bench strength within our organization. We, we have more confidence in our system, and we believe from time to time we can, we can outlay a path to approval and density uh, while working with the city as a partner. And that density and, and that path can be quantifiable and have limited downside risk for our partners. Uh, we don't think we'll, we should be able or ever go to the OLT. Uh, and we also just, we trust ourselves to add value through the rezoning process now with our story and with our relationships and, uh, and with our program. So I think um, we, we want to keep our promises to staff through the development process. And it's, and it's a real pain in the butt buying his own site uh, do it with a deal that you had nothing to do with. 
Uh, maybe it's not designed to our program. Uh, we have to go through a bunch of minor variances. We just had one approved on six dots yesterday to add washrooms onto the mechanical penthouse to access the rooftop pool because the previous developer never would have thought that they would come, someone would come along and do that. But that's that's a big part of our projects. And so we have to we want to avoid these these kind of nuanced variances later on and we, we just trust ourselves to, to design for ourselves and, and we're, we're getting good at it. Yeah, I can imagine there's always issues with the previous owner promising certain things to the municipality and then you coming in buying the site and saying, well, I didn't make those promises, <laughs> all right? So, but Dana, from your perspective, obviously you, you guys partner on a lot of deals. How does it usually work with, you know, trying to, 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 to get approvals? Is it, uh, you know, where you just decide one, one firm or the other or do you work collectively? How does, how does that typically work in a partnership? Um, so we do have a lot of partnerships and we have a lot of legacy partnerships. One of the things that Forum, you know, has been um, what I would say is notorious is we were very good <laughs> at P3s and we did a lot of P3s in the beginning of Forum um, in the early in the early days of Forum. And so we have a lot of uh, really great projects that are still le legacy projects from that, whether it be, you know, CAMH or the Billy Bishop infrastructure project of the tunnel through or partnerships with York University, like our quad uh, student housing uh, student housing project. In that, you know, there's four phases of that. We're currently in phase three. And so one of the suggestions was we each time had to go through a zoning bylaw amendment for whatever reason, don't know why, just to change a definition that had already been changed twice before. And then also because things have already been gone through zoning, we've already dedicated park, we've already dedicated streets, we've already built all the sidewalks, we've already done all the things. The city wanted to go through a full zoning process. These are minor in nature. And so let's save two years to three to six months and do it that way. And so I brought that up because we have partners on that project, obviously, and we work together hand in hand 50-50 with those projects. Our Lombard project, downtown Toronto, we're 50-50 with Slate Asset Management. It actually works quite well. But then the large majority of our um, actual active development projects ourselves are, we are the development approval partner. And so we're moving through um, those approvals um, ourselves. Um, and uh, with that, we have our real estate business has a team. I mean, in totality, Forum is about 50 plus. Um, we have a team of 2025. 20, and it's a very integrated team with all sorts of different expertise in it, whether that's operations, asset management, development, investments, you name it, we have it internal. And so we are moving through the, those processes um, ourselves and in, into those approvals as well. Yeah, yeah, I mean the, the entitlement process. I don't, I don't know how you guys can, can handle it. You know, with the uh, with the type of things that uh, people will say at public meetings, and the type of comments, and the type of things that you know a counselor will say to you to your face, and then what they'll say at a public meeting. I just, I could not deal with that type of uh, the <laughs> those types of say, issues. What so. I'll say is, people always think about the public interest, and they mix it up with public consultation. And so there's the public, which is the actual public, the everyday mom and dad walking down the street with their home, I don't want it, I don't want it in my backyard. But the public interest is everyone. It's every single stakeholder, which includes the municipality and the politicians and the developer and the adjacent neighbors, et cetera. At the end of the day, as silly as maybe this sounds, everyone just wants to be heard and they authentically want to be responded to. And so, it's, it takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of time. However, it's, everybody needs to understand that not everybody's gonna get everything they want. You'll get a little, 
and we're all, you know, in kind of a democratic like society and where that is how we do and give everybody accountability and give everybody that sense of community because then people start to feel a sense of ownership of that project. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting what you said. Uh, the former minister, Steve Clark, uh, he did a lot of good things. Uh, maybe not so good, but from what, the legislation was great. And when he came up with uh, 109 and 39, all the legislation that was going to it really uh, impact on uh, municipalities' ability to make decisions and slow things down, he said, you know, there's exactly the two kinds of people. There's the people that have, but he says, I'm here to help the people that don't have, that need housing, and they're not being represented at these public consultations, if you take that, that little statement, that I, I, I love that statement. Um, they're not being represented. So who is representing them? Is the councillor? Well, does he have the greater good? That's why That's why I, I go back to the ward system, where at least the city, they, 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 they charge guys a ton of money out in, in, in Vancouver. So you ask developers, you say, oh, is it so great? They won't say it's so great. But at least there's a greater good looking at it. And, um, and that's what he was trying to do, to come up with legislation that will help everybody and not just the 70% to have their nice little home at Eglinton and Bathurst. So uh, your, your point's very well taken, Dan. Not, not a lot of great things came out of COVID, but one thing that was, was um, kind of the virtual consultations. It's not perfect, but you're seeing groups emerge like More Neighbors or uh, Mark Richardson and Housing Now that are able to participate and kind of be that voice of future residents in underrepresented groups um, versus the old model of kind of huddle up in the church basement and you have all the locals uh, standing up in opposition. Um, and just even in general, uh, I think they're a little bit more accessible to, to young people or people that aren't able to make these meetings where they can come on, speak up for a couple minutes. And you're, I'm actually hearing more support for development and people actually being like my son moved to uh, Alberta because he could no longer afford to live in the neighborhood that he grew up in. And that's hitting close to home for people. And you're seeing just more positive support for good development and, and higher density development in areas where maybe it used to be kind of a NIMBY hotbed. Um, yeah, I can't imagine how difficult it would be for some people to go up and actually support a development in person with, you know, the little papers and uh, go up to the mic and then uh, there's all these angry people with their arms crossed looking at them and even booing these people down, right? I thought about one point in time starting a company where I just had, I just, the developer hired me and I brought like 40 people and supported the development and as soon as some NIMBY stood up, boo, we would, we would boo them down. But that, again, that's not really representing the full, the full process, but uh Anyways, we'll we'll move on from the the, the entitlement process because I thought this was a interesting. Uh interesting article that uh, was again written by uh, by Lior here in buildingexcellence.ca and so this is from uh, just from late 2002 and I'll read uh, uh, read something 2002? From, uh, uh, 2022 uh, yeah sorry I did, I did write <laughs> things in 2002 but I'm not certain how applicable they are this is grade 10 yeah <laughs> alright so uh, numerous allegations were made in the notice of proposal to revoke license and impose conditions on license by HCRA. 
regarding the conduct of Addy Group. As a result of the recent settlement, the only issue raised by HCRA that was admitted and dealt with was the delay in returning deposits to buyers whose purchase agreements had been canceled. All other allegations of improper conduct were dropped. Most developers by now should be aware that regulation passed in April 2022, which increased the interest payable on all deposits, whether for cancelled agreements or closed agreements, from Bank of Canada uh, rate minus 2%. Uh, to BOC policy rate, um, 0.25% below the BOC rate without the two year, the 2% reduction has been repealed and replaced. So, um, so Lior, you know, do you have any additional commentary on this situation? Uh, again, two part question, cause that's the way I write them. <laughs> and do you think the, the HCRA overstepped its bounds trying to make an example out of Addy? I think you have to put the prosecution that they went through uh, the notice of proposal to take away licenses from about six projects um, in, in, in context. That was April 22, I think, when we were at the peak. And you had that's when you had, when I mentioned earlier about the fact that you had uh, trades that were basically tearing up their contracts and coming up with new prices and putting projects into, into um uh, overruns. You had a lot of developers that were using uh, either their uh, early termination clauses to say, I can't get financing because I can't finance this project with these kind of revenues. Uh, and that was what, uh, that's what Addy essentially did. They went to, uh, to, to purchasers and said, we can't do it because they got blackmailed by a number of, of, of uh, trades and put them over the edge. And the fina- they had financing, but of course the financing um, would require you to put in like six or eight million dollars of additional equity and it would take the ROI to, to, to zero. Um, so you have to look at it in, in that context. And you also have to look at it in the context that this was their second go around, unfortunately. They had gone through the zoning process in Burlington. Uh, they sold originally in 15 or 16, um, had a, a early termination condition there. Uh, the zoning took three or four years. It took them so long that again, um, the project was no longer economic at the prices that they had sold. So they canceled, resold. So there was at least a hundred or more purchasers that had been canceled twice. Or so it, the optics from uh, regulatory authority, it, it doesn't look good. There were good reasons for it. But you know, you also have to put in context the uh, everybody was being squeezed by the perch- by these greedy developers trying to uh, extract extra money because they figured uh, market's gone up. Let's get more money. We're gonna we're not gonna close unless you put another hundred thousand. And Ford, you know, uh, like he was under a lot of pressure uh, to show that they were doing something. And HCRA is the one that does this. They license the builders, not Tarion. So there was a lot of pressure on HCRA to do something. Um, and this one came along. You got a guy, you know, a company that on the surface canceled two, two projects and wasn't paying back their deposits. Let's go after them. Um, was it premature? I, I don't want to go into it, uh, but, but I, I think at the end of the day when they finally examined everything, all the allegations, and if you read the allegations, they're pretty, they, if you would read that, if they were all true, well, I wouldn't give those people a license either, with all due respect to my friends at Addy, but none of them were true. They Actually, I know what they, they were, uh, they bent over backwards. Their problem, and it was a very unique problem, was your purchase and sale agreement says, you cancel an agreement, legitimately, you got to pay back the, the money plus interest in 10 days. And in normal cases, if I'm acting for the developer, 
uh, they, they, we don't take money out uh, from the deposits until they start construction. That's generally the case. So, and the cancellations generally happen before construction. So if they did cancel a project, the money's, then the money's there, yeah. you can write the checks, it's no problem. In their case, they were halfway or partway through, I think they were the third or fourth floor when all these trades came in and did these things. And so uh, a lot of money was already in the project. So that's where they fell off. You know, technically they could not provide, they paid a lot of money. They went into their own pocket. They continued to self-fund because the uh, construction lender stopped. Um, but there's only so much money they, ha they had. And then they were reselling and then using deposits. But that doesn't meet the 10 days. And yes, there's an insurance policy, but you never want to have to look to the insurance policy because when you do, you're done. You won't be doing any business with any of those insurers. They're not there to pay out. They have never paid out. They're not, no, that's, that's. Yeah. so was it, unf you know, so they came up with a solution. They, they paid a small fine. They were always paying them interest, 6% uh, interest. They buried that, they, they or included that in the order to make it look that they got all this extra interest, but they were paying it anyways. And, you know, they, there was a problem. And that was one problem that nobody identified how you were going to meet the 10 days. But it could have been dealt with differently. You know, it, it, they could have, you know, like, but on the other hand, they had to do something, and I think uh, you know, people are much more aware of the situation, and they've put out now a lot of bulletins about how they expect builders to deal with purchasers you know, uh, outside the contract. If you're going to do cancellations, give them time, give them choices, you know, which is all fine. Um, so it was a very uh, tense time because for that six or eight months, they, were out, they, they couldn't do anything. They could only work construction on those two projects. And of course, they had no financing. So it was a really tough time for them. Uh, I, I, the result was, was fair. It was a very small fine, $60,000. Yeah. Um, but it, the, the damage to their reputation and the timing on the projects is, was horrific. Lior, I'm just wondering uh, of projects that you've seen that have kind of been sold and then gone into receivership. How many of them do you think actually made it through to the end and, and were built and purchases were, got the units that they, uh, they purchased. Um, well, in the past, you know, uh, in the past five, six years, at least most purchasers were, were not kept on. They, their, their purchase agreements were terminated because if, if they, if they, if it was a viable project with the revenues from the existing purchasers, you know, why did the, why did the existing builder fail? He may have failed because he doesn't have the right financing and so on, but in most cases, it wasn't a viable project. So the only thing they can do, and I know a number of them, is they cancel, the, the, the purchaser says, I don't want those, agree I like the site, I can make money on it, I can get now you know, $200 more a foot, but I can't do it with those purchase agreements. So you cancel them, you cancel them, that's your problem. You have a, an early termination condition, go ahead. You don't. You do what you want, but I'm not buying the site with those agreements. But they will get built. <laughs> yeah. But they'll get built at Eventually. a higher price. And uh, that's a, another issue, you know. So then, you know, what, what about the old purchasers? Should they get a break? There's, there's so many things, and, and, and they'll be on the table because this is a problem uh, that HCRA is looking for fairness in how they deal. And, and builders will, will have to really um, be cognizant of dealing fairly and, and, and equitably with their purchasers, apart from the legalities. So I think that's good. You know, we have to be moral and ethical, and that's, they're the moral, ethical watchdog. Uh, Tarion is the, is, is, is the warranty issue and, 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 and security, but they're the uh, ethical, and we never had that before. 
So HCR is, and they're learning. So, you know, I think to be fair to them, give them a break and, and work with them. That's actually the reason why I like that our new condo market is dominated by investors. So it's less of these, you know, mom and pops or someone that's planning on, that sold their existing house and was just waiting on this condo project to be done. And now they require another $50,000. It's it's this, you know, a lot of these investors are buying on a price per square foot basis as a commodity that they're going to rent out for 10 years. So if it gets canceled then and they know that this is that, 12% of all condo projects get canceled going in, that that's a potential going in and they're take, they're willing to take that risk for the potential upside, so. The problem is on the low rise side. Yeah. You have investors, but at a much, much, much mm. lower rate and yeah. you have much more of the mom and pops that are buying homes. Yeah. And, and it's a shorter, the, yeah, it's a shorter Dijk, period The Van Dyke project that was on the CBC last week. I mean, why it's taking eight years, I don't know. Um, but uh, th- those are the problem ones and yeah. uh, they're much more difficult to deal yeah. with. Well, I wanted to talk about a, uh, a press release that was uh, that came out in March of 2023. It says, form real estate income and impact fund. Invest principally in institutional quality, multifamily rental apartments, purpose-built student accommodations, and co-living communities located in supply-constrained markets in Canada. The trust also strives to deliver a sector-leading impact and ESG-driven portfolio that will enhance yields and total returns while future-proofing the portfolio to ensure diversity and resiliency of income. So Dana, there's a couple of things I found interesting in in that uh, in that paragraph. The first being that there's an emphasis on supply constrained markets. So you know what metrics are you guys using to try to assess the degree in which a market is constrained? Well, I mean, all markets right now, are, <laughs> especially in residential, are yeah. constrained. Um, Forum really focuses on, as I had mentioned, traditional rental, purpose-built housing, and purpose-built student accommodation, um, as well as condo in places that make sense and geographically make sense. Supply constraint, you know, we take a look at all sorts of different information that's out there telling us what the market needs and what the supply and where it is. However, for us, if we're talking about PBSA, for example, um, it obviously needs to be close by to a university. And we have, we've actually been working with a partner who's actually quite great in terms of, their name is Bonnard, and they're all globally uh, known. And they also keep track of students in terms of registration as well as international as well as um, you know what the overall registrants versus what they have on campus in terms of uh, the actual residential yeah, so housing a, a that's provided. A demand and supply analysis. And it's a dan- yeah. yeah, it's a demand and supply analysis for sure. And then understanding you know how supply constrained that is. And so just recently, for example, we closed on an asset in Oshawa that has a lot of universities and colleges. It's got UTech. Durham College, um, it's it's got you uh, a number uh, Trent, sorry Trent yeah. University as well, and so you can see that these universities are starting to expand in areas where they want to be closer to bigger urban cores but they don't have the residential capacity or on-campus capacity to provide housing. And so what happens in these circumstances, I could even go into our Guelph product where we bought that hotel leg I already spoke spoke about, but now we're into phase two. Um, Those uh, those particular locations are so supply constrained that you've got students living in regular traditional apartment buildings, which is fine, but they're from first, second, third, fourth year. Um, 
the university has had to turn away registrants because they don't even have on-campus housing for them in year one. Wow. Um, but also, uh, you've got students, parents who are more affluent buying up single-family homes in neighborhoods around the university. Because of that, you have a lot of housing that's being taken up now by students because the universities don't have the capacity to house them on their campuses. And so for us, having a university town like that or city that has a lot of students that are trying to move their way into that into that uh, geographical area. And that includes domestic as well as international. Because the other thing we're starting to see a lot of is universities or colleges want more and more university uh, students of international because that actually brings in funding for them as well. Interesting. And so, <laughs> so what we're seeing is, you know, we have all of these students that are coming over into Canada and they think that they can then get permanent residence afterwards, but they can't. But in order to get your visa to come in to, uh, these, the, into Canada as well as go to university, you have to secure housing. And you have to secure housing before you get here. Wow. And so there's, there's so many metrics and factors that go into it, whether it's domestic students, international, whether it's how much the universities are continuing to register and want to grow and where are they located, and is there land or is there other uh, potential buildings that could be converted into student housing quickly? Because universities, much like municipalities, are not very nimble, and they don't move quickly, and they don't have, they have a lot of equity, but they don't know what to do with it. And they they can't, they don't understand development like like a developer does. Yeah, 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 it's, uh, we we discussed a little bit on one of our previous podcasts about how, you know, some of these institutions can't borrow money from a typical capital uh, Mm -hmm. provider to, to, to build student housing. So they rely on the private market and, uh, you know, a market like Oshawa is a great example. There just hasn't been a lot of condos built there. So there's not a lot of investor supply and there hasn't been, you know, you know, hardly any rental buildings built there. One of my clients has one there and he's, he's getting huge rents in, in Oshawa because it's basically the only nice new rental apartment in the entire <laughs> municipality. Right. So it's interesting how I, that. I'm from know. Oshawa. So I'm just yeah. going to stop you before you say something about Oshawa. Just, I love the schwa. Yeah. I love the schwa. You know, uh, I know that, that Greg did a lot, did a lot of work in uh, Durham region in his, in his previous, uh, in his previous job, trying to get some of these projects uh, approved and how, uh, how they weren't so, uh, so happy about some of the density that you're bringing into some of these low rise neighborhoods, right? How dare you bring us back to back town home into our low rise neighborhood? Well, these poor people are living in 1400 square feet, right? But anyways, we won't go there. We've, we've talked enough about the entitlement uh, process, but I did want to read and we were because we're reading press releases here. So this is from February of 2023. Fitzrovia Real Estate is pleased to announce the initial closing of its first real estate fund, the DevCore Fund LP. This is focused on development of purpose-built rental housing across the greater Toronto area. The fund has a target size of $920 million of equity commitments with over half of the target commitments secured to date. DevCore's investment mandate is to acquire well-located lands across the GTA in close proximity to public transit and major employment hubs for the purposes of developing rental housing. The fund's ultimate capitalization represents over $2 billion of purchasing power, which will be used to help alleviate the GTA's lack of rental supply. So interesting um, um, you know, discussion how you talk about alleviating the rental supply, but they want to invest in 
supply constrained markets. So, you know, you guys might need to fight it out here. So, but, <laughs> but again, let's, I want to concentrate on the fund. Who's investing in this fund and why, why would they invest in a, uh, in a Fitzrovia fund? Uh, this DevCore fund, uh, which is really important to us, it, it kind of allows us to some runway to do maybe the next four or five larger master plan purpose-built rental sites where previously our firm was kind of going deal by deal to potential uh, institutional investors. Yeah. Uh, so, so kudos to uh, Adrian and the investments team for being able to fundraise in a, in a really difficult time and, and show... Uh, some of those partners are ones we've we've worked with previously, but just having them have that confidence in us was really a, a nice uh, gesture that that allows us to progress as a firm and, and do some really great stuff with, uh, and hopefully an easier and smoother um, um, process. Um, and I guess your second question was, who's but, investing in the fund? Yeah, but uh, the, the, the press release also talked about alleviating rental supply. You know, but uh, doesn't that restrict future rent growth? Right? Like, how how do you look at that in terms of, I guess, as an as an organization, like. I don't think you're, one organization is ever going to oversupply the marketplace, but what kind of discussions are you talking about in terms of the ability to absorb 500 units in a market or 700 units in a market or 1,000 units in a market? That's a lot of purpose-built rental supply in some of those projects that you're, you're talking about. Yeah, I think we look at it on a, on a site-by-site and, and neighborhood-by-neighborhood, municipality-by-municipality basis. Like, we're not going to be going out to uh, maybe uh, Etobicoke and doing a... a, a 1200 unit master plan, for yeah. example. Uh, however, maybe a, maybe a good spot on transit, like our Bloor and Dufferin project, uh, right kind of center ice in Toronto. Uh, we feel a little better about that. Um, but allevi- in terms of alleviating uh, rental supply, uh, my attitude is kind of, we're, we're maybe adding uh, a product in the market that doesn't exist. And hopefully you're kind of seeing some of those middle uh, renters or um, people that are just priced out of the uh, the home buying market, come up to our product and hopefully maybe frees up uh, opportunities for that. You're not kind of getting that squeeze where you're getting a trickle down that you're not kicking people out of kind of maybe lower income units or, or vintage style apartments, uh, which kind of helps. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's filtering or what we call a vacancy chain, right? So the more expensive apartments or nicer apartments people move up into those apartments and then it frees up more housing but the problem is is we've totally undersupplied the market so the vacancy chain can only go so far right so the more and more new housing that we provide the more people at the bottom can can uh, be helped by the adding of new supply right so I, i think you're right in terms of like what housing supply that is and so i i i think in terms of what you were just trying to get at we've been providing housing the same way over and over and over again. And it's because in a lot of policies and a lot of requirements, guidelines that are actually law, uh, you are overprescribed in terms of the unit type, the overall percentage of it, and the size that it has to be. And so Toronto, for example, you look through the entire condo, they're all the same size. They're all the same units. And there's no diversity in terms of what we can offer. And so looking at different types of product that you can provide, whether it's student housing, whether it's rental or even home ownership, what do people need? People need affordability. Affordability right now is a factor if in the new market is a factor of size. And it's a factor of what you can afford on a monthly basis. So what needs to be included in that? And so no matter what residential product you're building, you need to provide something that is different than what has been provided before. Because now you're, you are 
providing something to as a stepping stone. And a lot of times we get people saying, oh, well, I wouldn't live there and I, I wouldn't live in something that small or I wouldn't live in something that is furnished or whatever it is. And it's like, this isn't for you. Um, it's very much something that people don't want to live in their parents' basement until they're 35. Yeah. At least I didn't and I don't <laughs> want to and I did everything I could, hell, come hell or I water not to. But we are building the same thing over and over again. And that's, we need to start evolving and changing, especially as an industry, about understanding the demographics. And so I think you're right, Greg, in neighborhood by neighborhood, municipality by municipality, and what doesn't it have? How can we fill those gaps? Interesting, interesting. I know I didn't uh, prep you on this question in advance, but I know John Fox from your your office is working on a lot of affordable- Mr. Mr. Community and Affordable Housing. Yeah, Mr. Affordable, he's working on a lot of those uh, those projects. What are the, what are, what are, what are the biggest challenges? Where does he th think the, the best way to, to get some of this affordable housing built? He's the affordable housing guy. In fact, it's interesting. The, the office uh, is sort of split geographically, and he's on one side, and I call that the affordable housing group. Uh, and I'm on the other side, and I'm on the unaffordable housing side. Um, I, I think he'll talk, and he's written a lot uh, about the definitions of affordable housing yeah. and how those are going to come into play. And and really, governments uh, don't understand it. And if they, you know, they would sit down and figure out what the different levels should be, and uh, you know, that's. That I think is one of his big uh, his bugaboos, and then the other is, 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 is from my perspective, is freeing up um, the uh, there's there are programs. CMHC has the program with an R in it. I can't remember, but there they, they, it takes so long to get through and do it. It's the usual, you know, excuse my language, the usual bullshit that whenever the federal government gets involved in anything, it's it's, it's a travesty in terms of the timing and the complexity. <laughs> they want to build, go out and streamline it and make it workable. But it's such a process. That's not going to create the housing that you need. And somebody has to really take the bull by the horns and cut through the bullshit and also throw in a lot of money. And until uh, the federal government starts throwing in money either on those type of programs or very simply um, cutting the HST not only on rental housing, but on uh, uh, either cutting it or indexing it, uh, th that's a simple way to make them more affordable. They promised it in 91. They lied, just like they said that 1917 income tax was temporary. And they have the cards. I mean, I think the province has done a lot. Uh, they've tried a lot uh, to streamline it, and uh, they've only got so much money. The federal government has limited supplies of money because they can just keep pumping the debt, mm -hmm. and they have to come to the table. And all they've done really is all mm -hmm. these silly little uh, pieces of legislation: the foreign buyer tax, the the, the uh, unused housing tax. It's all it's all it's all baloney. It's all window <laughs> dressing to show the world that the, you know they're doing, or to show the country they're doing something. Mm -hmm. They are putting some money. There are some programs, but they move so slowly. And I, we need a czar that's going to just cut through it. And I don't know how we get there because anything to deal with the federal government, federal civil service, immigration, you name it, as bad as we think the municipalities are and the provinces, they make them look good. And, but they've got the answer. That's where the answer is. And how we unlock it, that's the key. And um, We you know. have a handful of applications that had to be put in, you know, June, if not earlier than right. that, in CMHC point. trying to get MLI select financing or right. other types of financing that still haven't been picked up yeah. as a file wow. to this day. And the other problem is when we've also submitted in some other of their programs, like innovation programs or whatever it is, 
the data that they, their analysts internally are selecting is so irrelevant and not even something <laughs> that they should be basing their analysis on, that people are getting rejected who are truly needing financing to bring housing online, but we're getting re rejected at times for that financing because, well, I have old data and I don't want to see your data. And so, sorry, but we don't have the money for it. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, have you have you uh, um, tried to put any affordable housing in any of these projects, or are any municipalities requiring you to, to to put them in any any of the sites that you're working on currently? Correct. Uh, a couple of our projects for sure. Uh, Six Dawes, which we uh, had the groundbreaking for this morning, which was a, a, a big moment for our company. Uh, over around 900 rental units coming to. Uh, Toronto and East York. Come to my hood. Come yeah. to my hood. Really. So stay tuned uh, for, for that to get under construction. But that has uh, six affordable units in it uh, as part of the Section 37 agreement. And also I, our most prominent one is uh, a, a project, a zone site that we bought at Bloor and Dufferin, the old Kent School, uh, along with Hazelview. And uh, that has a 56-unit uh, affordable housing building that will be turned over. Uh, we're going to build it and someone will uh, manage it. And that's... Uh, Probably the most significant one we have right now. Interesting, interesting. So, uh, I'll read another uh, excerpt from the Robbins Appleby uh, website. It says Robbins Appleby represented the Bank of Montreal on a forty million dollar land financing of a proposed high rise condominium development site located at five fifty two to five seventy Church Street uh, in oh. Toronto, involving an Alberta developer making his first entry into the GTA condominium market. And uh, actually, this project was just recently approved uh, uh, by the Toronto City Planning. Oh. So again, this was this was several years ago. So what are your thoughts on out-of-town developers coming into Toronto? We've seen, you know, Concord Adex and Pinnacle, tremendous success. Ani seems to have come and gone. Then we have Chinese developer Greenland, uh, you know, seems to be doing nothing on their on the waterfront. Any thoughts on... Uh, is, this a, is this a local game or can, can locals come in and uh, out-of-towners come in and be successful here? Look, I, I think uh, you know, the more uh, development and ideas and money that comes in here, we're, we're the biggest game in town here. So uh, I think it's good. Uh, uh, Greenland, yeah, that was the Chinese uh, government uh, arm. They, did, uh, they bought the uh, King and uh, king Blue, the Westinghouse yeah. Uh, yeah. project and they, they have uh, another project. Uh, but um, you know there were a number of Vancouver uh, uh, AmexCon and 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 they're thinking they're, they're related. Yeah. They're still out there developing. So I think I, I think it's good. Uh, that particular one, I'm I'm shocked that you're telling me that it just got its approval. <laughs> because that was well. I mean I don't know where you must have dig really deep because that was well yeah. before yeah. COVID for sure. So it's yeah. got to be five years ago yeah. that they bought it. They bought it at big bucks and they actually threw the marketplace out of out of whack to be honest because uh, <laughs> they, they they paid a, a, a but I, what some of my clients thought was above market, but good for them. Um, and it's look how long it's taken them. So I wish them well. Yeah. But I think it's good to get uh, other players. Players. I mean, the problem is, of course, you don't know the market, you don't know the system. So you got to really those guys. It, it makes sense to team up with another builder here that knows it, or get a really good team of people that are local. Mm -hmm. um, you had Montreal guys, uh, Broccolini, who came in here. Yeah. He came in here, uh, partnered up uh, with Freed, and then he's been doing his own things. And I think he's, I, I, I don't know, but uh, I don't act for him, but uh, he seems to have done well. 
well. So there's, there's definitely opportunities. Uh, the one thing I wouldn't recommend is us going into Quebec and trying to develop <laughs> because uh, you are taking your life in your hands. If, you don't, if you're not uh, ensconced in that community, ensconced in various ways, which I will leave to your imagination, you should not be going in there, whether you are a developer. Lenders are in there, and I think it's very challenging. So, But leaving that company, and I love Quebec because I'm from Montreal, but leaving that aside, I think it's a, it's a great, it, 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 it's good for people to, to branch out. Uh, it gives them more opportunities. If you're an Alberta guy, you know, what are you going to build? Uh, Vancouver, yes, but there's only so much and, you know, you have other constraints. So I think it's good. So, Greg, is there some uh, uh, expansion plans you want to announce in the podcast here today? Yeah, Lior, after what he said, I'm not sure if I want to say this, but uh, yeah, Fitzrovia, we're, uh, we are expanding into Montreal. And we've, uh, oh, well, good luck. I'm not saying you can't. They shut can't down do for it. two weeks in August. You can't yeah. get anything done uh, at all. Last wow. two weeks of July. It's this last two weeks. Last two July. weeks of July. Yeah. Zero. Wow. But again, we're, uh, we're, we're coming in. Uh, we think we have uh, a system that works, and we're, we're looking at um, some existing assets. We're not doing a ground up development right. Uh, right. from day one in that system. So um, we think we have a formula that works and can can work there with uh, some existing uh, assets that we've we've been brought into. And uh, we're going to see how it goes. And it's not just Montreal, but I think eventually we'd like to kind of expand further west and, and maybe into the U.S. one day. But uh, yeah, we, we, we think we have a formula and we think it's it's uh, portable. Nice, nice. Well, we uh, I have one more question before I go into the to the rapid fire. Now, Dana, your firm's involved in investments in Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver, Winnipeg. Do you always have local partners, or do you have comfort in you know uh, going into these markets and uh, kind of helicoptering and from, and operating from uh, from Toronto? It depends on what you mean by partners, but um, we do work with, we always bring on consultants that know the landscape. Always, always, always. Um, they we love have, those, those, those uh, consultants. They, so, you know, local consultants. The consultants, <laughs> the, the, like they have the relationships that really, really matter. And we can't just walk in there and say, big city Toronto, here we are. Yeah. We know all the answers. Because um, that's absolutely not true. And everywhere is completely different. Like the overall regime of, how you get through entitlement, approvals, financing, construction, it's different everywhere and those relationships are extremely important. So for us, right down from consultants to you know property manager, as well as how we treat our financing and whether or not we bring in different types of partners into the project, whether that be developer or whether that be like an equity partner, et cetera, um, really has to do with the location itself. Um, we do uh, have assets across the country. Um, some of it is legacy based on, you know, the P3 projects that um, Richard Arbud, our CEO, has like have been amazing in the last 30 years in terms of understanding how to um, create those partnerships. But also um, we reef uh, the short form of what you said earlier, which is our impact and income fund, okay. um, is an asset management uh, in, is an an asset management uh, manager. Sorry, I've misspoke eight times. Asset <laughs> manager who um, we hold assets in those as well um, to provide um, to provide dividends to our to our investors. Um, and in those, we operate those, we property management those, property manage those, or if there's, you know, something that is needed in terms of vacant space or whatever it is, we also, uh, the development team and the real estate team comes in. And, and so it's a very integrated team handling each of the assets in all of these uh, provinces. Okay. I wouldn't say that we're active development other than in uh, BC or Ontario, 
but we would like to be. Okay. And uh, like I said, it's really selected partners to make sure that we have all of the eyes and all of the relationships that are needed. So we're not just going in blind. Yeah. Yeah. That's always interesting. Because when I operated in the United States, when I lived in the United States, a lot of the developers, they were all over the United States. They'd be, some of them were in 20, 25 different states building homes. And I always thought that was interesting that we really hardly have any developers that operate, you know, both in, in even more than one province. All right. There's just a couple uh, developers that operate in. in but if you can develop in Toronto, so. you can do it anywhere in the world. I can <laughs> tell good. you that. That's good. Yeah. We, we even Montreal. <laughs> yeah. You'll figure it out. Just learn French. Yeah. You speak French? Uh, a little bit. A little bit? Oh, petit peu? Oh. <laughs> Boo. Yeah, no, I don't know any French. <laughs> I was very bad in French. So so we have this last section of our, our podcast. I know I've taken a lot of your time here, longer than we, we anticipated, but obviously they, we had some, some, some great answers there. So so basically the, the rapid fire is I hit you with some quick questions. Not all of them are real estate related, but most of them will be. We're looking for, you know, five to ten words. You can say yes, you can say no. That could be your only response, but uh, so we we, we just want to get them out nice and quick. Dana, we're going to start with you. So uh, do high-profile international architects help Toronto developers get approvals faster? Sometimes. Yes. Sometimes. I'll say Sometimes. yes. Okay. Um, should Toronto have a congestion tax on vehicle travelers into the city? Yes. There's a company, a nonprofit company called uh, Vivre en Ville that launched a new rental registry in Ontario last week, which allows anyone to enter how much they're paying in rent. Some people believe that this crowdsourcing platform creates more transparency and can lead to more affordable housing. Do you buy that? No. <laughs> like it's a good <laughs> undersupply constrained metric that yeah. we could potentially yeah. use. You could use that. Yeah. That's what I thought. I don't I'm like, think oh, so. this is great data I, I'd like to get access so. to, but I don't yeah. think it's gonna gonna lead to more affordable housing. Oh, this is a, this is the toughest one I have on here. Will Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey get married? No, I can't. I'm so upset, but I can't. <laughs> I can't. I hate that football. My my day of like Sunday. Is, is taken ruined? over with, Swift, with, all, like, with Swifties, with jerseys, and they're pink. I just, I can't. <laughs> I really can't. Okay. Expanding urban boundaries of suburban cities. Good or bad idea? I think bad. Bad. Okay. Should they give out architectural awards to buildings that haven't been built yet? No. I don't think so. That was no. not that weird. I was just saw that another word. Oh, there's a word for this fantastic like, building. I'm like, will yeah, they get divorced or won't they? Yeah, Let's give out an award. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, Greg, you're up next. Are you buying into the co-living trend? Uh, a little bit. A little bit? A little bit. Okay. Which of these three things will rise the most in 2024? Land prices, new condo prices, or construction costs? What was the first one? Land Land price. prices? I don't think any of them. Sorry, <laughs> that's, that's that's a fine answer. That's good. Uh, this is this is one that I struggle with. Should you include your email address and your email signature? Yes. <laughs> I, yes. Yes. I, I believe the same thing. Do you think allowing more missing middle will have any impact on housing affordability? Uh, absolutely. This is. If, <laughs> I don't want to go on too long, but I would much rather get together with four friends and build a four-story walk-up than get involved in the pre-construction game. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Olivia Chow wants to build 25,000 affordable rental units in eight years. Uh, what probability do you give to that occurring? I thought it was 65,000. <laughs> it just needs about a, high, a billion up. dollars from two. 12%. Uh, 12%. 12%. Wow. That's good. Okay. Should Christopher Hume stop writing about real estate? 
haven't seen a lot from him lately, but uh, it doesn't really add anything to the, the, the rhetoric or the discourse. Oh, no. no. All right. So, Lior, a Toronto-based doormat which provides real estate legal services to facilitate the closing of property, purchases, and sales has raised $1.25 million Canadian in pre-seed funding. The company was set up to improve the antiquated property closing process. Is the process antiquated? Less antiquated with title insurance. In the U.S., everything happens through title insurance. Here, it doesn't. Uh, you can use uh, First Canadian Title. That will streamline things. So can it be better? Yeah, but Ontario is very good. With Terranet and with uh, title insurance, I've re- I think we really have streamlined uh, the process. So I, I don't know what these guys are going to do. Good luck to them. <laughs> Should real estate lawyers pay referral fees? To whom? To someone who referred you. Well, I mean, as long as you're, we're allowed to, as long as you disclose it to the client, if it uh, generates business in a legitimate way. Okay. Uh, what's your most embarrassing fashion faux pas? Oh, well, that's easy. Uh, I have a bit of red-green color blindness. So I go to work. Um, uh, it's my second year of practice. Uh, one of the senior partners uh, comes in and he looks down at my feet and he says, um, Leo, what are you wearing? And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> he says, you have one brown shoe and one black shoe. <laughs> I said, oh, my God. And that, I think, that, that was, uh, that, that I still remember that today. I remember the guy who said it. He's, and I'm sure he still remembers it, too. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a good one. Uh, what's the number one thing a developer should consider when taking on a financial partner? Well, that's a very good question because I, I tell my clients it's not just the rate or the terms. It's how they will deal with you when things go wrong. Do developers purposely underestimate the condo fees when marketing a pre-construction project? Well, okay, two things. Technically, the the developer doesn't come up with the budget. They hire a property manager who comes up with the budget. Uh, But underlying that is a direction to to the property manager to keep the fees, obviously, as low as possible. At the end of the day, the property manager has to be able to defend that budget. Um, you know, the reality is uh, they, they, they come in light, uh, but a lot of things have, have gone up and I'm now yeah. facing four projects where you know, uh, fees have gone up by 40%, 50%. Wow. Wow. So, so, but I don't think they, del- nobody deliberately does it. They just say, let's keep it, maybe we'll cut out this service, maybe we'll cut out that service. Yeah. How can we bring the fees down? Yes, it makes it more marketable, but nobody wants to mislead purchasers. Not, not, I don't want to say no one, not my clients. Yeah, my clients. Okay, last one. What is your largest uncollected bill? Um, it was a developer. <laughs> There's a one mistake. I, I, he's in one of those OPMs. A brilliant guy, has n- none of his own money. Uh, had a lot of projects on the go and uh, got caught in uh, overextending himself. He should have just stuck to uh, land uh, zoning and development, not building. The minute yeah. he got into building, it was a nightmare. And <laughs> I, I, I had other clubs. Uh, partners that ran files that were, weren't necessarily real estate related and I, di- I didn't watch the I, I took my eye off the ball and um, we lost a lot of money on that guy but I can tell you that's the last one <laughs> but do we, you think Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift <laughs> yeah, should get that, that's tough one. married well that would take the mystery out of it alright so we're, we've, we've gone very long here yeah. but before we go uh, Dana if someone wants to, 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 to find your firm and learn a little bit about more about you where do they where do they go they go to forumam.com. So forum, F-O-R-A-M-A-M.com. <laughs> 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 um, and our website is there. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Greg, Greg, Fitzrovia. Where, where do people find if they want to rent some apartments? Uh, I'll sell you some land for cheap. Uh, Fitzrovia.ca. Uh, I'm a lot of, at a lot of uh, build events, ULI, stuff like that. So come up, talk to me, look for me. 
uh, love chatting, networking. Um, let's look, find some deals. Awesome. Awesome. If they want to use your services, Lior, where do they go? Well, they go to uh, robapp.com or they look up Robin's Appleby or if they can't remember all that, but they know build, you call up Dave Wilkes and uh, he'll, he'll, he'll put you in touch with me. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. It was a lively discussion. That's a wrap. Yeah.